All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor. Um, I'd like to remind you each and every week, I'm also the author of a newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. Uh, I do want to thank uh, each of you for listening to this show, making it one of the more uh, one of the more popular shows in the Voice America Business Channel. also want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. Our sponsors for today's show are RN Resources, Brazil Resources, Columbus Gold, and Trimetals Mining. Well, after the greatest bear market for gold and gold shares that I can remember in my lifetime, at least, uh, from 2011 through the first part of this year, um, it, it's, it was really terrible. But from so far this year, Things are really looking up. In fact, uh, my portfolio is up some 60%, and the exploration stocks are up over 200% so far this year. And it is certainly one of the most exciting times that I can remember. And if we just simply tread water from here on to the rest of the year, it will have been a very successful year. But will we just tread water from here on? And we're going to be talking to Michael Oliver in just a minute or two to get his take on that. What is his work telling him? Uh, his ob- very objective work, I would suggest, uh, and so we always value Michael's remarks. He's going to be with me in just a minute or two. Those of you who subscribe to my newsletter know that I work extremely hard to try to understand the fundamentals of these junior exploration companies, to try to understand the geology, the prospects, the economic v- uh, factors that could go into making a project one day profitable or not. Well, one of the companies that I hold in most high esteem are in resources. We're going to be talking to the executive chairman, Ivan Bebek, in just a couple of minutes uh, after our first break. Uh, RN Resources is run by uh, Ivan and also uh, Sean uh, Wallace, who together these guys have been extremely successful in the past. They're putting together something I think is going to be their biggest success yet. They have a project in Nunavut. Uh, and, and a couple now in Peru and one in British Columbia. All of them look like they could be world-class projects. Tremendous potential for all of them, and so I am extremely excited. It is now my second largest holding among the junior gold shares that I personally own, and of course it is one of my favorites in my newsletter. My main guest today uh, is, is the distinguished author and past Wall Street analyst, continuing Wall Street analyst, actually, John Rubino. And the main question for John will be, what impact, if any, will the Brexit have on the price of gold? And John will be with me following my discussion with Ivan Bebek uh, at about a little past the half hour uh, today. Of course, informed as John is, and as much as I tend to agree with him, based on a shared free market philosophy, one thing all of us free market advocates know to be true is that the collective wisdom of markets is far superior to anything any one of us may think. 
So uh, communists and fascists, like those who seem to run our country these days, uh, don't seem to understand that concept, but certainly Michael Oliver does. Uh, he knows that the collective wisdom of markets and uh, is superior to anything any of us might know, and and he really has some very uh, some very good techniques for reading the uh, the markets and understanding those markets. So I'm really pleased that he can be with us once again. Thanks for joining me again today, Michael. Great to be here. You know, my partner Chen Lin voiced the following view about gold, and I want to his view of the markets, the gold markets this year, and he said, and I want to get your take on it. Chen said, and, quote, and I quote, as far as gold and gold miners, my view is that we will need to consolidate a little here before the next move. We need to retest somewhere in the 1275 to 1300 area. Uh, the gold future positions is close to all-time high and similar to early 2008. I don't see it as a bullish sign, end of quote. So wh- what are your thoughts? Are we going to tread water the rest of the year? Uh, could we see some, some more to the upside before the end of the year? Uh, or could we, or do are we vulnerable to the downside? I think the vulnerability to the downside has passed. I think we've just gone through our major congestion for gold. Uh, remember, we surged into February, mm-hmm. uh, went up from the low 1100s to 1260 in a thunderbolt, and then from mid-February, March, April, May, it's three and a half months. You stayed in a box, basically defined by just below 1200 and uh, just above 1300 swinging back and forth, and every time there was a downswing, the doubters would come out, and Goldman Sachs would say short it, and so forth and so on. What they were overlooking, or were not conscious of, because they look at price charts primarily, I guess, mm-hmm. yeah. is that when gold moved up to the low 1100s in early February, uh, our work had a massive annual and quarterly momentum base that was three years wide. In other words, if, mm. if you were building a building, the bigger the base, the bigger the building, okay? Mm-hmm. We emerged through that, and it was flat, and you could define it with a crayon. Uh, it didn't show up on a price chart, but it did on momentum. So when we went through there, we said, this is it. Buy it here, uh, and don't look back. Uh, and that, that buy zone was 1140, 1160. Since then, the lowest we've seen gold is in the uh, 1190s. I don't think you're going to revisit that. I think that was the congestion. That was the correction. Uh, or in the last day of May, we traded down to 11.99. That was my projected low. Was that pullback that would take out the March low and the April low, which were both above 1,200, and do it just by enough to take them out and stop. <laughs> That's what happened. They blew the price charts through the bottom of the, those two months lows, and mm-hmm. immediately turned. And next thing you know, you're 13.60. All right. Uh, so there's probably not a not a good chance of picking up a lot cheaper. Oh, gold if you drop below 1,300 now, there's a there's a remote chance. In the next week or so, you might dip into the high 1200s. I, I count that as a coin toss at best. Mm-hmm. But if you see it, I'd buy it. Mm-hmm. Uh, my, most of my weekly work, the shorter-term stuff, says uh, any downside now will be a quick stab and you'll go back up again. Yeah. Um, it's, it, it, it just looks wrong for the downside case, even, even a trading case. In other words, mm-hmm. you want to be short for three weeks. I, I just don't see it. All right. So I think, I think gold's poised to go to very high 1400s, low 1500s, this year. This year. Maybe. All right. All right. Maybe so, way before the end of the year. 
All right, very good. Well, let, let me ask you about gold and the shares, gold shares relative to the S&P. On June 25th, you sent some important information out to your subscribers regarding uh, gold and silver mining sector versus the S&P 500. Now, you also had a, a large number of individual stock charts, too, showing the relative performance of go- mm-hmm. individual gold mining companies to the S&P 500. Yeah. But uh, with respect to the relative performance of the sector, could you talk to us just a, briefly about how are gold shares is performing versus the S&P? Um, outstandingly. In fact, we thought in late 2015 that, one, gold would turn this year. Two, you don't want to buy gold, you want to buy gold miners for a change, uh, which is a big change, as you've noted before. This a, It's a big change up to, to fa- mm-hmm. favor the miners instead of the bullion. Uh, I think that will persist. Uh, and, and gold miners are up, you know, most of them are doubled since their lows, if not better, since the lows, which occurred late last year. Uh, and whereas gold's are about 30% off the slow. And I think that that ratio will continue. Uh, the GDX, which is the one I focus on the most, which is the unlevered gold mining ETF, not mm-hmm. the juniors, uh, it's up uh, you know, well over 100% from its lows. It continues to congest and then inch higher, even without gold making new highs, I've noted uh, in the last few months. Uh, it's trading, you know, 26, 27 area. Um, I think you're going to 39 and I think you could see it this year. Um, as far as the congestion issue, we need to correct and all that stuff, I, I, when I look at gold, I say, no, you just went through a three-and-a-half-month congestion correction with two $100 drops within that context of that mm-hmm. congestion. Mm-hmm. So, in other words, that was a cleansing period, a rest period. I don't see the need for another one. Oh, interesting. All right. Well, what do we want to ask you about Brexit. Uh, you put out a very interesting... Uh, piece on the 24th of June. Of course, that was, I guess, last Friday, and uh, the markets were digesting the news, the Brexit news. Uh, your title was Brexit. Momentum looks through the headlines and the tape. Regarding the S&P, what is your momentum work telling you post-Brexit? I think the Brexit was, first off, it, we anticipated, and that was based upon a spread relationship between the FTSE 100 and the Eurostox 50. In other words, you measure the blue chips in London and the blue chips in Europe, and the trend had shifted on the relative performance basis, where it favored, after much many years of downside, where England was underperforming Europe. This changed several months ago, before the Brexit vote. Why would that relative performance trend, which had been underway for a long time, change prior to a vote that was supposed to indicate no change? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So the spread was saying, change is coming, and sure enough, the change came. I, I think the Brexit is just one of many... Uh, fractal events out there that are all correlated in that they, they are destabilizing to the forces that want to have unified and large super states. Mm-hmm. And that you're going to get more of the Brexit-type events. Some of them might even come from the left, like in Spain, the Podemos party, which is mm-hmm. rising in power, which uh, to some extent is a threat in its own way to the, uh, the Merkel view of the world. And I think you're going to get more of these, and I described them in that report as not causative factors, Brexit didn't mm-hmm. cause the market to go down. Brexit uh-huh. was a pinprick of a balloon, of a bubble, that was ripe for busting. Uh, and the bubble can be defined different ways, high equity prices that were unjustified, especially in developed markets, and the interest rate situation. Mm-hmm. So Brexit is merely a pinprick. It's not the causative factor. It's the thing that just busted the, the causative factor is the existence of the bubble. Sure. Yeah. All right. All right. Speaking of bubbles, with about a minute left here, Michael, uh, the T bond, I see. You know, with the Brexit, the mm-hmm. T bond, the U.S. T bond, 
exploded to the upside. You've been calling for some sort of a blow-off mm-hmm. in the mm-hmm. T-bond. Uh, is this it? Do you think this is, this is part of the it. beginning Normally, of it? Normally, a blow-off won't last just a month. It'll last a couple. So I, I think if you close this month out above 170, and we're well out above there right now in the nearby futures, 173, I think, uh, you're likely to go up. And I wouldn't be shocked to see it up in the mid-180s. Um, but the blow-off should be brief, meaning only a month or two. Mm-hmm. And the real issue is not participating in the blow-off. It's when that blow-off fails, blow-off always implode. Yeah. And there's yeah. enough stuff in the T-bond market that I can see technically, especially from a momentum perspective, that says if this blow-off exists and then fails in uh, utter exhaustion up there and mm-hmm. turns down, which it will, uh, there's a lot of stuff to break below, a lot of bridges to blow up, and then you will have a major rise in interest rates once the blow-off ends. Once yields get maxed out on the downside, when they flip, it will be far more dramatic the other way. Oh, my goodness. Safe long-term debt is very much in jeopardy later this year. Well, I think that's very interesting in the uh, in the context of what Alan Greenspan was suggesting on Bloomberg the other day that we could be heading for inflation, some very significant inflation issues that he sees. But uh, uh, Michael, you know, we always value your work. You uh, you do such objective work. You let the markets tell you what's going on. You're not telling the markets what's happening. And right. so your work is and you use momentum as opposed to price, which mm-hmm. seems to me your proprietary momentum work is very very valuable. So we want to thank you so much for being with us again, folks. <laughs> Want samples? Uh, I'm happy to give them. It's OliverMSA.com. Uh, request some samples, and we'll send out sample reports to you. Excellent. Thanks, Thank you so much. Thank you so Thank much. You. Well, we're Bye-bye. going to go to commercial break now, and when we come back, we'll be talking to Ivan Bebek. Uh, so don't go away. He has a most exciting company, RN Resources, one that uh, I value very highly and have purchased myself a significant amount for me, a significant amount of my portfolio in that stock. So don't go away. We'll be right back with Ivan Bebek. Oren Resources is a Canadian-based gold exploration company focused on the company's flagship Committee Bay project located in northern Canada, one of the best mining jurisdictions in the world. The company's current resource outlined by drilling thus far stands at 1.1 million ounces of gold at over 8 grams per ton. Oren is operated by the same team that founded Asanko Gold, which is constructing a major gold mine in West Africa, and Caden Resources, which was recently purchased in November for over $200 million. Brazil Resources Incorporated is developing projects with a total of 10 million ounces of gold resources. These acquisitions were made at discounted prices during the recent commodities market downturn. The company is a go-to name for leverage to the rising gold price among institutions and analysts. It is also exploring the highly prospective REA Uranium Project with JV partner Arriva in the western Athabasca Basin. Get to know this exciting company now by visiting brazilresources.com. TSXV, BRI, OTCQX, BRIZF. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor 
at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really glad to have with me once again Ivan Bebek. Ivan is the executive chairman of RN Resources. Uh, he's had uh, over 15 years of experience in financing foreign negotiations and acquisitions in the mineral exploration industry. He's been on this show before. He and his partner, Sean Wallace, they've come together uh, to form a couple of very successful ventures in the past. Uh, and during a time when the market conditions weren't all that favorable, you'll remember many of you who listen to this show, Caden Resources was a sponsor of this show, and Ivan was on to talk to us about that. And more recently, we we have had Sean and Ivan on to talk about RN Resources as well. And the last time we spoke, uh, the company had a very exciting prospect project, actually, and, and developing it and moving forward uh, a multi-million ounce gold deposit, a, a prospect for that anyway. Uh, that's very exciting and, and certainly was the reason that I recommended the stock to my subscribers and one of the reasons I was very happy to have them on as a sponsor. But now they've uh, come up with something even bigger and uh, some more prospects, a couple of things in Peru where they've been looking at uh, a long time and now they've just recently announced uh, an agreement and they also announced a, um, an agreement uh, with a company in British Columbia to pick up something that looks very exciting there as well. So this is one of my favorite stories. I should tell you that it trades in Toronto uh, under the symbol AUG, and you can buy it down here in the States, as I have, uh, under the symbol GGTCF. Uh, there's 58.2 million shares outstanding, and uh, trading about $2.20 in New York, or in the U.S. Uh, money, and so that gives it a market cap of around $173 million. But I think this is a company that has huge upside potential, and therefore I'm really pleased and honored to have Ivan with me. Thanks for joining me again, Ivan. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here, Jay. Always good to talk to you guys. You know, it's always good to uh, to associate with people who are successful, and you and your partner, Sean, have been so successful in the past, and I think uh, it's the combination, sort of a rare combination of financing skills and contacts, uh, along with the technical skills that you bring together, and success breeds success, so the past successes have allowed you to bring even on even more uh, talent in the mining sector, that is technical talent, and you've scoured the the earth for some great prospects, and that's what we want to talk to you about, a couple of the new things that you just recently picked up. But before we do that, I'd like you to review the Committee Bay Gold Prospect in Nineveh, which is in itself, I think, a reason that more than justifies the current share price. But talk to us a little bit about Committee Bay and what your plans are there now. Yeah, sure. Well, thanks for the introduction, uh, Jay. I'm going to give a little bit of color just for a refresher for your audience. Um, sure. You know, um, we've this is our third company that Sean and I have put together. And uh, w- one thing I will say, when you have successful ventures, you know, it's not what did I do wrong, it's what could I do better. Because mm-hmm. obviously you're having a successful venture. And, you know, what we've come together with on Orin is Sean and I have in the downturn had the luxury of being able to find one of the best technical teams in the world. And uh, I say that uh, predominantly former Newmont global exploration uh, experts that, that ran programs globally for Newmont. But in, in addition, if you saw our press release of the day, we added another gentleman by the name of Rail Lipson, who was the uh, chief exploration geologist for Goldfields. And why I'm really high on the technical team outside of the fact that it's going to improve efficiency to discovery, the cost of discovery. It's more importantly because uh, 
good projects draw really good technical people in. That's a factor that I learned early in my career, and I'm sure Sean would say the same if he was here right now. So you look at Committee Bay, and then you look at what it is. It's, it's a 300-kilometer-long greenstone belt, um, a belt that has high-grade gold from one end of it to the other. It's uh, in northern Canada. There's no question that there's always the question of can you mine? How expensive will it be to mine? Could you build a mine? That's the number one question we get. Um, the, the company who purchased our last company, Agnico Eagle, is mining successfully right next to us, you know, a few hundred kilometers away. And then there's a few other uh, fairly big and well-known mining operations up in the north. And uh, we can talk about those later in the interview as well. But ultimately, everything in the north is size and it's great. And those are the two most important things. It allows you to be able to mine or to find and discover and monetize success anywhere in the world. Um, Canada is the number one place jurisdictionally to be in as far as we are concerned, parts of Canada. You can't get a better place for safety of your employees and for for tax rates and for uh, government behavior and whatnot. But uh, ultimately, it's all about the gold to us. Um, The big technical team is picked what they think is a singular asset in the world being that high-grade gold belt, and it's the Committee Bay Belt. So I talked about 300 kilometers of of grade, high-grade gold, very rich gold, you know, previous discoveries. I believe that the company before us had found about 62 different discoveries that were uh, discoveries based off of, predominantly off of outcrop, meaning they would walk along the the belt and they would see some rocks that they they looked like they'd have gold in them. They would use a rock hammer, chip them, and then drill underneath them. Um, What we kind of bring to the table is an intense, you know, very, very technically driven, um, intense layers upon layers of technical data is what we drive out of it and a more modern way of approaching this belt. Um, our chief geologist, Michael Hendricks, and his team have already brought the drill cost down, uh, the exploration drill cost down from $1,000 a meter to two fifty a meter. And that, that's a remarkable reduction in cost, especially if you're going to go drill up north. And so the story behind the Committee Bay Asset is not whether or not we're going to find something. It's finding enough ounces that matter. And the question is, how many ounces are there that matter? Well, if you look at some of the other mines like TMAC or Sabina and you look at the deposits and you know when Amaruk is now standing alone on itself, Meadowbank stood alone on itself, you're finding a threshold of about five or six million ounces of about six or seven grams per ton is, is kind of the rule of thumb to be a standalone in the Arctic. Mm-hmm. We think that we're on to something much bigger um, because of the prospectivity and a lot of the targets that have been revealed prior to us and what we've been doing in the last year and a half on this project. Um, we feel that we could go maybe three or four times that in the next few years. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily delineated. We're, we're not looking to delineate at this time. Our goal would be let's find the footprint of the deposit or the dimensions of the deposit. Let's find the real structures that are carrying this rich gold that we're looking at. But that would be you know, the first two or three years of a project that we think you could drill in five gold for the next 30 to 50 years. This is a, an unreal belt. Um, the amount of gold in it is unreal. That's outcropping. But what's under the 95% of till cover, till is mm-hmm. left by glaciers when they slide a- across the surface, that's what really keeps us up at night. And so our team, uh, predominantly former Newmont ec- world global experts, are looking at this saying, how can we get underneath that till? How can we explore that in a really efficient manner? And I'd say that Michael and his team have done a remarkable job figuring out a way to sample the tills in a, in a unique way that no one has ever done before. Mm. You know, outside of the RAB rig, we've flown the entire belt with a drone. 
this gives us the, revolution, the resolution to see your fingernail on the drone year-round. So kind of, you never really leave the project. You don't get caught up by the winter and the pause. Hmm. The one thing with, with a northern project, uh, Jay, and, and you might appreciate this from other stories, um, we obviously drill through the summer months or the warmer months of the year. But in that time that you're not drilling, you're doing homework. You're doing lots of homework. And in an exciting drill program in our last company in Mexico, you explore with the drill, you explore with the drill, you explore and you drill, but you don't really take four or five months off and think about it, you know, holistically, what is really going on here? What is the big structure? What is the big picture? So when you go and take that time as we have done, and these guys work every day, 12 hours a day, they're going over this project with the fine tooth comb, all, all the different data sets they've got, they're coming up with the real big picture of what really could be there. And, and now actually is an exciting day as we just started drilling today. So it's, uh, it's, it's 100 holes that we're going for, maybe possibly some more, depends how drilling goes, but at least 100 holes, 10,000 meters will be drilled starting today and that will continue for until the end of August with a bunch of results that come out into, uh, into the fall. And our goal here would be to make a second and possibly third discovery besides three bluffs. And then next year, we would go and we would expand all two or three discoveries, including three bluffs, and, and show that they could all get through five million ounces of gold. So the leverage for shareholders would be to have the start of a couple additional real deposits this summer going into the expansion of those deposits and the expansion of the original discovery, which is 1.3 million ounces of eight grams per ton in three bluffs. Um, everything that's been discovered to date ahead of us is wide open for a lot of, you know, really high level interpretation for potentially more ounces. But, you know, what we have the biggest time with, and I couldn't do it on your show, I couldn't do it with you in person, because we have a hard time doing it with a month of reviewing every single target is understanding how big the scale is of everything, mm. how big this really could be. That's really tough for us. Yeah. We try to simplify it into two or three targets, but there's 60, 65 discoveries to be followed up on. And, and, and just to give you an example of what a discovery is, you know, it's this stuff like 20 meters of, of 11 grams per ton with mm. no follow-up drill holes around it and hanging <laughs> space, we call it. And, and so you're in a belt that has gold from one end to the other. It has a deposit that's growing in the middle, and it has huge 5 to 11 kilometer long anomalies or signatures mm. that are, are in this high and rich gold all around it up to 300 grams and so on and uh, you know a theme in Keegan days and in Caden days there was gold everywhere here there's gold everywhere along a much 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 bigger place and the gold is really rich so that's it's, kind of committee bay and, and what it means to us it's yeah. a standalone target that could build us a tremendous company on the discovery base um, I personally don't think we will be able to hold on to this if we are half as successful as I think we will be but um, it's exciting it's, it's one no, of the it's most a, exciting times to go drill it oh it is the most one of the most exciting projects I've ever seen in, in decades in this business I must say uh, I, I suspect your your targets are very close to surface then you talk about a till the till coverage and you'll have to go through that I suppose and you're finding unique ways to uh, to target the areas under the till from what you're telling me uh, the 100 drill holes are, are we looking at um, I guess we're looking at targets that are very near surface though right yeah, everything we're doing is near surface. Um, there's the possibility that a few deeper holes come into uh, West Plains where we believe it's the start of the second discovery, but those would only be to about 200 meters. So, you know, everything we're doing is, if you look at our website, you'll see the uh, three bluffs deposit and you'll see how it 
a lot of it, if you drilled just the top 100 meters, you would have found that entire footprint. Mm. And then you could just go back and drill underneath it and pull it down as deep as you want to pull it, mm. right? Mm. If we find a similar signature to what Three Bluffs is in the top 100 meters, then I could sit there with a lot of confidence with our technical team and say, look, we're onto another 5 million ouncer, no question. And the next summer would be bringing in the core rigs, or sorry, RC rigs would be what we use, which would cost us about 400 bucks a meter to drill if we drilled a bit of scale in these, in these targets. Um, but we would use those to go down to three or 400 meters next summer, and we would just pull the pit down. And, you know, you have two types of scenarios. You would likely start with open pit that would end up being underground, and uh, that's a good thing in the north, and that's kind of what you'd hope to see. But the question that doesn't get asked a lot, Jay, and that should be asked a lot is not so much how, much, how expensive would it be, can you build the mine? It's more to do with how's the met? How's the metallurgy at Three Bluffs? That's yeah. the question that I'd be asking if I was a shareholder because, you know, regardless of a higher capex to build something for a billion dollars up north, other people are doing it. The thing that can kill or make projects, and everyone knows this worldwide, is the metallurgy. How easy is it to extract the gold out of the rock? And our, our test results that we inherited from our predecessors on uh, Three Bluffs were identical to Meadowbank. They're in the north, mm. north of 95% recovery, which wonderful. Outstanding. So now you're not just finding high-grade gold, you're finding rich gold. You're finding it in a fairly remote environment, but it's of the value that you can make money at lower gold prices, such as $1,200 gold, if you have the right volume. But the extraction of the gold, pulling the gold out of the rocks, is in the highest percentile of what you'd hope for in, in terms of mining gold. So that brings your costs within reason, and it makes a mine much more profitable. So really has all the characteristics of a major, major gold belt. Um, we can see three districts emerging right now, and a district is an area that has more than one gold deposits of, you know, two to three or five million ounces. We're seeing three different areas right now that would be their standalone districts, and oh. then the entire belt to consider. So it yeah. gets big really fast. It's a very safe place to be. There are no caribou. There's no animals, and I say that because Sabina was recently turned down on their uh, environmental permit with mm-hmm. the, the Inuit. Caribou. Um, uh, there, yeah, the caribou uh, migrating through their ground. And what happens in the north is, well, two things. The day that they announced they didn't get the permit, uh, TMAC was granted permits for as much expansion of their tailings as they wanted. Mm. So, you know, it, it begs us to wonder. Maybe there was some some issues that were direct between Sabina and the Inuit. We don't know, so mm-hmm. I'd refrain from comment there. Sure. But what I can tell you is on the uh, east side of the Arctic where we are, in Meadowbank and Amaruk are, um, there's no caribou. Okay. Um, we don't see anything like that. It's, it's really remote, and so you know, there's no concern to us on that basis. All right, Ivan, it's a really exciting story. I mean, this alone is a reason uh, that I'm excited, so excited about your company, but I know that during this downturn in the uh, gold market, in the gold share market, you were on the lookout. Your technical team were scouring the globe for safe places on the globe to work and operate and uh, for some great targets and I know that you were looking in Peru for some time and finally you came through with some news on June 2nd. You picked up a couple of prospects in Peru. Talk to us uh, briefly about what you see with those prospects in Peru. Yeah, sure. And uh, Peru, I mean, 
having a, a lot of former Newmont experts on our technical team, there's no question that they're really comfortable with Peru. There's a mine down there called the Anacocha. It's over 60 million ounces of gold has been discovered. Uh, the gentleman who discovered that was a big part of discovering that as a gold versus a silver deposit, and the team that worked on that deposit is... That's how our Peru portfolio came together. So you can imagine that of all the places on the planet that we're familiar with, our technical team is the most familiar with that one there specifically. Um, We have two projects right now. We're pursuing an an additional one. Um, But the two that we have, one is very early stage. It's land that we picked up when Anglo was hemorrhaging uh, non-core assets in the downturn. Um, It's a a massive porphyry target. It's in the belt where there's two and a half billion ton, you know, half percent or better copper and and gold credits. Um, so that that's a that's more of an earlier stage exploration target. We found a very 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 significant geochemical signature of gold and copper on that already in some early work that we did. So that is something we'll get to later next year. But in the in the main one that we acquired is called Weacoyo, and this Weacoyo asset is. For me, I've said this once before, I'll say it again, it's a, it's a very similar project to, uh, to what Barcanio was when we first stepped on Barcanio. It's an epithermal gold project um, that the predecessors drilled about 150,000 ounces of oxide gold. There's water power and roads right, right to the project, so it's convenient in a, in a very, very positive infrastructure setting. It is at elevation, but not one that no one else is mining. People are mining eight kilometers away in a mine called Minsur. But it's, it's something that, to me, and why I draw the parallel to Barcanio, that looks like the, next, the first 30 to 40 holes that we drill look really we're really confident that they're going to be hits. They're step-outs of existing gold that's there, and what really, really gets me excited is when you listen to the Newmont technical gentlemen that work with us, especially our structural geologist, Michael Hendrickson, and he talks about uh, the, the, the analogous structures that exist within the Anacocha. Mm. And it's, it's not that we think we're going to find 60 million ounces, but you know he sees the exact same thing happening. And this is about a four by six kilometer, you know, highly altered system that's sitting there that's you know, had drilling on maybe 300 meters of it. So it's it's got a lot of room to grow. These are very profitable ounces. And, you know, our theme of our company is high-grade gold in the north and oxide gold in the south. And uh, Peru is a, is a great country to work in. They have a very, very stable and strong mining code, something that we can all, you know, feel very comfortable putting risk mm-hmm. dollars in to go find these deposits. And you can be very successful. If you look at what Ross Beatty did in the last market, he was extremely successful in, in Peru in the last bull market so you know that's Peru Peru is oxide it's the easiest type of rock you can mine and then the last thing I'll mention is our BC acquisition which we just announced about uh, two weeks ago the um, Homestake uh, company Homestake Resources they have a, a, a resource of about a million ounces of nine grams gold equivalent. Uh, it's gold, silver, uh, a bit of lead, <clears throat> excuse me, and copper. The the value of that metal, if we can make it work, which we think we can, and the and the potential of growing it, you know, is certainly there. Or else we wouldn't have done the acquisition. But there's no one on the planet that for eight to ten million dollars that you could buy a million ounces of nine grams gold equivalent. Mm. It just it just doesn't happen. So the value in that deal is. Is, is to us is is the growth, and I think that our technical team is really deep, obviously, and I think they give us a very unique picture to how that can make a lot of sense for us and for the market. And I think uh, shareholders can look forward to uh, once that deal is acquired, um, to us starting to work on it. And and I think shareholders will see, although it's 
only a million ounces of nine grams to, to you know, as a, as a first look. There's a, there's a very meaningful reason of why we've done it, and I think it will be something that is extremely profitable because of where it sits, its access to infrastructure, and um, the richness of the grade. And it's just something that I think will have really good numbers going forward. Well, it's really, really another exciting prospect. I, I think, though, that with your operations in Peru, it means we might be treated to some regular drill results then in, uh, during the winter months uh, or during the colder times of the year, perhaps. Yeah, you great point to make, uh, Jay. It's 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 coincident. Um, Peru is standalone. If that was all we had in the company today, we could we could market it and we could show the market with a bit of work on it how it stands alone as as we sit here without Committee Bay, without BC. But you know, our drill program started today in Committee Bay. It'll complete in August. As those results come back from Committee Bay, which, as you know, is positive, they're usually really good catalysts for your market. Um, we will start the trenching and the groundwork in Peru and that will lead up to a drill program starting in January so and then followed by Committee Bay and then followed by BC and then back to Peru so what I can tell you and, and investors listening on the line is the next three years you know and this is foreseeable targets that we want to drill we can see ourselves drilling 80-90% of the time mm. and this won't this won't take away from the homework that I mentioned earlier in the call because the Committee Bay team once done and processing drill results they will be doing their homework on those results as we're starting to do work in Peru with the Peru team right and this is something having eight world experts on the team each with their own disciplines we get to move through data at a much quicker pace than the typical junior would and so um, we certainly have the depth of technical people to work on these assets but you know it's the, the, the sharpest or the steepest point of any exploration curve and the most exciting part is drilling absolutely because that's really <clears throat> that's where the discovery is made if you're not drilling you can't make a discovery that starts today and you know our ambitions is to drill for the next three years this is by known targets not by guessing on future targets there's, mm-hmm. there's a lot of stuff worth drilling and uh, so now it starts it's the exciting part and uh, hopefully I mean the market looks like it's going to complement us in the gold space uh, you know with the Brexit and the low rates and the future outlook post election I think our timing is quite surreal between all the companies that we've had to date not only is this the best portfolio assets this is the uh, the best market timing that we've had and I should make that point because you know we've mm-hmm. Caden was a downturn market. You saw that. We still delivered tremendous value on that asset. Keegan was uh, up and down, and, and it's coming back up. But, I mean, this market here, as we sit today, I think we're in the early stages. We're, we're in the first few innings of a nine-inning baseball game. Yeah, I would agree, and I, um, I I just think it's an extremely exciting story. But, unfortunately, that's all the time we have. Uh, thank you so much, Ivan, for being with us today, and I hope that we can talk again soon for an update. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure being on your show. Well, folks, don't go away because after the break, John Rubino will be with us to talk about his thoughts on what the Brexit might mean for the price of gold. Trimetals Mining is a growth-focused mineral exploration company creating value through the exploration and development of its 100% owned near-surface Gold Springs Gold Silver Project in mining-friendly Nevada and Utah. 
Trimetals has only drilled less than 10% of the gold targets at Gold Springs, and it already has a robust preliminary economic assessment. Trimetals believes there is a significant potential to increase the gold mineral resource through further drilling. Trimetals shares are listed on the OTCQX and the TSX under symbols TMIAF and TMI respectively. Brazil Resources Incorporated is developing projects with a total of 10 million ounces of gold resources. These acquisitions were made at discounted prices during the recent commodities market downturn. The company is a go-to name for leverage to the rising gold price among institutions and analysts. It is also exploring the highly prospective REA Uranium Project with JV partner Arriva in the western Athabasca Basin. Get to know this exciting company now by visiting brazilresources.com. TSXV, BRI, OTCQX, BRIZF. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me once again John Rubino. And you should be sure to go to dollarcollapse.com to keep up with John's work. Uh, as well as uh, the works of other authors who write there. A lot of really good stuff there, dollarcollapse.com. John has authored uh, quite a few books, actually. Uh, I I suppose the one that's best known might be The Collapse of the Dollar uh, that he and James Turk co-authored in a more recent one, The Money Bubble, What to Do When It Collapses, also co-authored by John Rubino and James Turk. Um, Both very much worth your reading, and also dollarcollapse.com, go there, very much worth your time uh, to get John's latest take on, on various markets. Thanks for joining me again, John. Hi, Jay. Thanks for having me back on. Always good to have you with me. Uh, we've titled today's show, or at least the idea of today's show, is what impact, if any, will Brexit have on the price of gold? First of all, I, I hear there's a lot of people suggesting that maybe Brexit won't even happen. That in fact uh, there could be uh, you know a veto that comes out of Scotland, or there could be uh, that it's non-binding, and therefore the the, po- the politicians don't really have to pay attention to what the British people want. Uh, do you think Brexit is going to happen? Well, I, I think Britain leaves the front pages pretty soon here because now comes you know two years of basically grunt work, right? First, they have to figure out who's in charge of, of the different political parties because both uh, David Cameron. And Jeremy Corbyn of the Labor Party are out, apparently. And so the next few months will be kind of internal elect- electioneering, you know, where, where they try to figure out who's going to run the country. And that's not really very important to the average American or to the financial markets. And then they got to negotiate with the EU over the terms of Brexit, should they go ahead with it. And that's not going to be that interesting either, because it's going to take a really long time to knock out, you know, the details of trade deals and stuff like that. So Brexit, I think, is over as a big story. But what it represents 
is very interesting because it's the first domino to fall in what might be several, maybe more than several dominoes. Because now that it's see, now that the other anti-EU, anti-Euro, anti-austerity political parties out there see that it's possible to strike mm-hmm. a blow against the European Union, you're going to see similar kinds of movements spring up in other countries, and they're going to be energized by Britain's success. You know, National Front in France, for instance, is headed by Marine Le Pen, who is now the most popular individual politician in France and is anti-Euro and anti-European Union. So let her win the next presidency in France, and uh, and we'll see a, a Brexit-style movement in France, except it'll be called Frexit. And, uh, and that will throw the global financial markets into an absolute tizzy, you know, because France is central to the, the biggest economic bloc in the world. And, uh, you know, Britain can leave because they were always peripheral. So they're not a, a mortal threat to the European Union. But let France try to leave and, and it's mm-hmm. game over. Mm-hmm. And it also flowing from Brexit is really a mass devaluation. You know, you can't hold the Eurozone together with it being as strong as it is because Italy and Spain and Portugal and Greece can't function in a strong currency environment. So if the Eurozone wants to maintain the common currency, they're going to have to devalue and push interest rates down to even lower levels, you know, even more negative levels. And that in turn is devastating for the big banks because they already can't function in a zero interest rate slash negative interest rate environment. You know, the banks are are the big problem industry out there now. Other than oil, um, the banks are probably the the most seriously impaired business model that exists in the world today, the big banks. And, you know, Deutsche Bank especially is a catastrophe waiting to happen. They're they're like the Lehman Brothers and, and Bear Stearns rolled into one right now. They've got a derivatives book that is several times the size of the entire German economy. Their stock price is down by two-thirds. They're reporting massive losses. And there's no end in sight because interest rates are not going up. They're going down. And the lower interest rates go, the more of a problem that is for big banks. So uh, I think the, uh, the process that Brexit was a part of was already in progress. You know, It was already happening, but Brexit turbocharged it. And mm-hmm. now we're going to see chaos in the European Union, which bleeds over into um, Japan, for instance, because as the euro and the pound go down, that's the same thing as saying the yen is going up. And they're desperately trying to to devalue the yen, but they're failing. And the yen keeps getting stronger, which is going to, first of all, make their massive debt load even harder to manage. And second of all, um, impair their exporting industries, which is basically all Japan has going for it. So yeah, you know, everywhere you look, Things flowing out of Brexit are um, are threatening other parts of the global financial system. So Japan's currency getting stronger is hurting its export business, I guess, huh? Because it's yeah. relative to the euro. The euro is getting weaker, forcing Japan's yen higher, relatively. Yeah, yeah. Currency valuations. When you say you know the yen is strong and the pound is weak, what, what you're really talking about is relative to each other. You know, mm-hmm. there is no objective measurement of currencies out there in a fiat currency world. So if one goes down, another one has to go up, by definition. And it's the yen that is now going up. And Japan it might be the country least able to handle a rising currency. So they're also, you know, like Deutsche Bank and like the European Union in general, Japan is a time bomb. 
and the fuse is lit. And the, the coming year, we'll probably see one of these things blow up. You know, it might be Deutsche Bank, it might be the Eurozone spin out of control, it might be Japan having a currency slash debt crisis. You know, there's no way to know who's, who's going to be first. But um, those things, when they happen, will be bigger than Brexit. And, you know, already, um, Friday was the biggest single day loss of equity market value in history. We lost $2, tri- $2 trillion of wealth that just evaporated that day. Mm-hmm. And there, there's no reason to think that something much, much bigger than that isn't on the horizon imminently. Yeah. Well, that's, that's a very frightening thought because all uh, manner of chaos can break loose from, from that if countries go broke and banks uh, can't pay and you can't get money out of the machines at the bank. Um, what happens, John? You start to have utter chaos can, and... and uh, other you know, chaos. Uh, yeah, it, it's 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 very frightening in a way when you think about it. But yeah, I wanted to ask you. So the winners and the losers. I mean, you, so you can I guess speculate and well, not more than speculate. You're seeing what's happened already to Japan. The U.S. dollar has gotten stronger as a result in the last few days since Brexit. Uh, but as you say, Japan probably less able to handle a stronger currency than the U.S. is. Um, but so in in and then corporately, you're you're noting. In fact, you put out a very good piece. Uh, I think it was today or yesterday, perhaps, you were talking about comparing the precious metals miners to the banks. Uh, the banks' share prices have just really tanked since Brexit. I guess that's the time frame that you're looking at, or was it longer? I'm not sure. I'm just, I just saw your piece. Uh, the bankers are the big loser, the big segment loser in this thing, as you see it? Yeah, yeah. Well, the chart I put up was just for one day. It was, oh, it was okay. Friday. But the, the banks just getting crushed. There were I, I put up a chart of um, the stock prices of major banks. Yeah, and I'm several looking at of them. It. Yeah, yeah are down double digits. You know, it's yeah. 14, 16, percent in one day. Yeah, that's gigantic for for something as as big and stolid as uh, Credit Suisse or or Deutsche Bank. You know, those kind of moves almost never happen. Nor should they ever happen. John, I'm looking at your chart now. Credit Suisse lost uh, 14.87%. Deutsche Bank, Uh, 16.32%. BNP, 16.75%. I mean, that's just astounding. Actually, that was it for day. It might have been worse by the end of the day. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's amazing, and then, of course, by contrast, we see the gold shares went up very dramatically, uh, the majors at least on that day. So, uh, so, so this is really um, very interesting. I, I noticed in terms of gold, um, on Bloomberg, there was a report that the Chinese investors rushed out on Friday to buy huge amounts of uh, a gold-backed ETF there. It jumped uh, $191 million last Friday. Um, so Chinese are buying a gold ETF, uh, do you have any sense of whether this is just paper gold or is it real gold? And, and I mean, with respect to our own ETFs, even our own gold ETFs, I know your colleague James Turk has, has written some things in the past questioning the legitimacy or, let's say, the, uh, the reality of gold ETFs actually owning and holding the gold. But do you have a sense of as to whether... Um, that means that that gold, actual physical gold, is being taken off the markets? Do you, do you think that that's the case? Or is it just people buying virtual gold, as many Americans uh, seem to think if they buy their ETF or whatever, that they're actually owning gold itself? Well, it's probably both. The Chinese like their physical gold, you know, culturally. And yeah. the government has been um, buying 
thousand tons a year or so for um, for a decade now, and they they have an awful lot of gold, much more than they're admitting to right now, and they've been encouraging their citizens to do the same. So China is a big buyer of physical gold, and these ETFs um, that you know they vary in quality and in um, in covenants. And some of them, like GLD, for instance, the big one in the U.S., is a trading vehicle, but it's not a way to actually own gold because, um, according to their rules, they don't necessarily have to have all the gold that um, that they would need to cash out everybody who wanted to cash out. If everybody yeah. took their shares and tried to convert it to gold, there's not that much gold in their vaults. So yeah. that is a, a trading vehicle. If you want to bet on gold going up this week, that's a really simple, convenient way to do it. But if you want to own gold for the next 10 years as a way of preserving purchasing power, that's not your vehicle. You know, there, there are other funds out there, and I don't want to name names because I am not an expert in the details of every single fund and don't want to leave one out or mistakenly put one in mm-hmm. one category when it belongs in another. But um, there are some that are, um, are set up a lot more legitimately as far as allocating your gold to you goes. And so those are reasonably good proxies for physical gold. But there's no real substitute for actually owning the stuff and having it in hand. You know, that's, that's the core of your portfolio. If you, uh, if you want something that is absolutely guaranteed to be yours going forward, then you've got to own it yourself, you know. And, and the next step beyond that is to have it be stored for you in a super safe, insured vault by somebody who's got a legitimate history of doing that for customers. And, um, you know, James Turk's gold money company has, has, was designed to do that um, a decade ago and has done a good job since then. So the mining stocks are a separate thing, and they're the things that have gone up most lately. You know, the gold has gone up a few hundred bucks an ounce. Some of the mining stocks have quadrupled in mm-hmm. that time. And the reason for that is this, um, you know, and by the way, Jay, uh, I, I'm sure your listeners know that you are one of the world's experts on this subject. So so I'll just speak briefly. Well, thank you. That's it. very kind of you. I don't know how, I, you know, I work hard at it. Jay, uh, we look, I work really hard at it and we look at the fundamentals of exploration companies. And I would say that the most exciting stories, the ones that gain the most percentage-wise are the small exploration companies that are successful in their exploration efforts. So my, <clears throat> uh, my um, area of expertise is more in trying to find the, uh, the explorers that can be successful. And, and, you know, in down markets, there's no money at all for those companies. And they basically uh, go into hibernation and the share prices, there's no liquidity. We've come out of that. There's no liquidity. But when there is, and when they start to find some uh, and start to build up a resource, then these share prices can rise very, very dramatically. We're just talking to RN Resources, which I think is one of the best out there. Uh, but, you know, one thing I'd like to ask you about, John, is that uh, during the 1930s, when we had, you know, the, the depression of the 1930s and gold was confiscated, I mean, we can ask you whether you think that's a possibility again, and I'd like to get your thoughts on that. But during the 1930s, when gold was confiscated, of course, the the miners were allowed to continue to operate in Homestake, for example, it went up several fold. I think, I can't remember exactly how much. While the stock market lost 90% in its worst time, the Dow, uh, the gold shares went up four or five fold, something like that. Do uh, you think that's a possibility in the future that we might see a, um, 
you know, confiscation or a requirement for turning in gold? Because let me, you mentioned China and Russia, I know, is building up their gold reserves tremendously. They're building the new Silk Road. They're uh, consolidating their own trading environment, their own economy over there, because in part because the United States is freezing them out uh, and trying to compete with them in in Asia and so forth. But... um, where has does the United States have the gold? Is one thing. If if we if the United States was forced to to shore up its currency and and restore confidence in the currency with some sort of a gold or silver backing, uh, would the U.S. have the gold? Is the first question. And secondly, um, you know, where has China gotten all their gold from? I know they're the largest mining, the the largest producer of gold right now, and Russia's not too shabby either. But any thoughts along those lines? I mean, relative, I mean, as you point out, owning the gold shares is quite different than owning the gold bullion. I think you need to own the gold bullion personally, first and foremost, and then speculate with the gold shares. Yeah, gold bullion, in other words, gold and silver coins for an individual, that's your cash, okay? That's the thing that you don't expect to go up necessarily, but you expect it to hold its value. Gold mining stocks are your investments. Those are the things that that can not just hold their value, but go up two, three, four, ten times in a lot of cases. So they can make you lots of money. And you combine those two, and if gold goes up versus dollars and euros and yen, you do very well. You know, your, your portfolio succeeds where a lot of others fail. Now, it, as for where China is getting its gold, that's a big, interesting point of debate in the uh, precious metals community because the world doesn't produce enough gold, the world's gold mines, to satisfy China, Russia, and India each year. They're, they're getting more gold than is produced by the world's gold mines. So it must be coming from somewhere. And speculation is that it's some of the big Western central banks shipping their gold to, um, to Switzerland, mm-hmm. who then melt it down and reform it into bars that are of the size that the, uh, the Eastern buyers like, and shipping it to Hong Kong or Shanghai or wherever. And so it's not clear which Western Central Bank is, uh, is tapped out or if they're all equally, you know, dipping into their, their vaults and shipping goldies. But it's, it's coming from some central bank in the West. And mm-hmm. um, the British Central Bank, the Bank of England, is one of the, uh, the prime possibilities. And we don't know what the U.S. is doing, but yeah. uh, we've got, in theory, the most of anybody. So yeah. we could... Um, most easily satisfy Chinese demand. But still, it's a, there's a limit. <laughs> we don't have yeah, there, infinite there, gold. Yeah, there really is a limit. Unfortunately, there's a limit on our time. My engineer is telling me only one minute left to go. John, uh, just one quick question, and, and I need a quick answer. Is Brexit deflationary or inflationary? Well, it's, it's probably both, because if it causes a debt crisis, that's deflationary. If it causes everybody to devalue their currencies, that's inflationary. And just like you know, today's world pre-Brexit, we got these two big forces out there contending, you know, debt deflation versus monetary inflation. And it's not clear who wins. All right. So, we're going to have to leave it go at that, John. Unfortunately, we are going to talk about to, next week to uh, Ron Paul, who I know is a, the ultimate inflationist. He believes it will end that way. Uh, sorry to cut you off. I know there was so much more to talk to you about. We'll, we'll have you back again sometime real soon, John. Um, so thanks again for being with us. Well, folks, that is all the time we have for this week. Next week, as I mentioned, Ron Paul will be with us, and I hope that you'll join me. Until then, goodbye and God's blessings to you.
Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Trimetals Mining is a growth-focused mineral exploration company creating value through the exploration and development of its 100% owned near-surface Gold Springs Gold Silver Project in mining-friendly Nevada and Utah. Trimetals has only drilled less than 10% of the gold targets at Gold Springs, and it already has a robust preliminary economic assessment. Trimetals believes there is a significant potential to increase the gold mineral resource through further drilling. Trimetals shares are listed on the OTCQX and the TSX under symbols TMIAF and TMI respectively. 